0: you are here we are (laughs) we're here uh i love our intro man that's it's definitely weird and awkward, but
1: it's good. It's good.
0: Great guest today. One of our uh, Hot shot, Phil, man. Phil Lee, partner at Field Fisher. Uh, you know, he he called you erudite, he calls you erudite, which I think is awesome because he's <laughs> extremely erudite. So
1: man you know the thing is like i because we come into this thing like not prepared i mean you've seen me when i teach like it's a lot more methodical here i'm just kind of like a ball of chaos Um, and i'm figuring out the questions as i go along so i like ramble but i feel like phil's gonna be able to hang with me
0: on this i think that's the fun of it and you know um phil i love his approach right because it's it's he he will get into the practical with you you know he'll get into like um you know well what is your he will talk to your engineers you know what do you actually want to do how do you want to accomplish this and uh he takes this he takes a risk-based approach which i always tend to oh, learn, yeah. you know with oh, yeah. when when you've got to got to bat something around with with an outside counsel he's the he's one of the few for sure to to get that really practical he's
1: also he's also one of the few folks that like gets the american perspective and the european perspective sort of like inherently natively like he's yeah. kind of i mean he's, he's a european guy but you get my point like he kind of he's been here he's done that he's silicon valley like he, yeah. he gets it
0: yeah and uh okay. i mean he's he's he did spend time here although i think he probably i think he had that in him before, before. Yeah, you're probably right. helps probably. right but he had that in him before um if you were- so what's up with the, what, what's the video game theme today tetris tetris um do you remember playing tetris like do you remember yeah i played it on the game boy a lot oh
1: i did play tetris on the game boy yeah oh, like God, i do remember that
0: but less less on the uh the system I, yeah i played it on
1: nintendo i mean you get colors you know but like I, i've never been a big my sister loved tetris man and i just like was like i don't know man it was just like too, 2 two-dimensional for me but like people love yeah i mean thing.
0: there's this there's the, there's the there's the puzzle games you know and then there's the kind of like brute force games yeah, yeah. like like you ever play contra
1: of course contra is a
0: brute force game of course you man. Know, like you're just like brute forcing your way through that game <laughs> trying to win it <laughs> and, and, and we talked about zelda a bunch but like puzzle game or like a thought thoughtful game um and then it, to me there's like three categories there's like brute force there's sports, which is its own category, and then there's, like, puzzle-y kind of games. Yeah, like,
1: or, like, adventure puzzles, right? Like, yeah. you've got, like, Tetris being one extreme, and then, like, adventure puzzle Mario, Zelda, whatever. No, um,
0: like like, Zelda um, and Mario took it to different levels, you know?
1: Yeah, I, I as much as I love Zelda, I recognize, like, the Mario series. It has to be the best video game series ever. I know we're going to talk about We're going to include both these games, but I can't think of anything that comes close.
0: Like, as far as, like
1: everyone understanding what it is and having played it. What,
0: like, what's your what's your take on Wario? Trash. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that it. It was ass. I remember <laughs> when, when Mario Kart came out and That's and, example, and, they, and Wario was in it. And I remember like doing a double take being like, who the hell is <laughs> Wario? <laughs> like <laughs> Who's this looser? guy. Like where's this guy coming from? Yeah, Who's like, this what a loser? twin? What a loser. I was even I was even like a little annoyed when they came out with Luigi.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean Luigi like Super Mario Brothers 1, I think Luigi was in it. Yeah, he was. You could like play with Luigi and like
0: one, I don't think so. I think you could, man.
1: I think I you think could that- decide if you're going to be Mario or Luigi and play the whole game out as one or the other. I might be wrong, but like I feel fairly confident about it. Um and then definitely Super Mario Brothers 2. You could pick all these characters. Remember, yeah. like all these different randos, be the princess or whatever. And then Super Mario Bros 3. Again, you could pick them both. But like, I know we got we're going on the fill, but I will say one more thing about the Mario series. Mario Super Mario Brothers 2 is the most enigmatic video game that ever existed to me. Like, it's actually a good game, but it's so weird. It's like the Super Mario Brothers team got really high and
0: was like, let's make this weird. And they just did. Oh, but isn't that the creation of every video game? I mean, I have to like, how do half these video games get created? I mean, there's a there's a there's a baked interpretation to every one of these games. I mean, how do you invent yeah. Legend of Zelda? You know?
1: Yeah, I mean, Super Mario Brothers two is the CPRA of video games. <laughs> like,
0: it's just like hot take, it's, hot it's just, take. It's,
1: just, <laughs> it's, just, <laughs> it's like. We, we we like what we did the first time. But we're just gonna add this random confusion into the into the process. I'm like, let's just see how it goes, and we'll see. I mean, I don't oh, know. I that's love that saying. take. Yeah, yeah. I wish we could. Anyway, all right, uh,
0: all right. This is <laughs> that's a good great...
1: Tetris. Let's go <laughs> talk about encyclopedias. <laughs>
0: all right, all right. Here it is. <laughs> <laughs> all right, here we are. We're here. We're here with Phil Lee, legend, legend, <laughs> uh, pri- privacy legend, uh,
1: oversold
0: auditor field fisher. Um, you see that
1: encyclopedia in the background looking good, looking good, vintage.
0: Yeah, Phil, what it's, year is that? Is that a Britannic 2000,
2: uh, 2007? Current it events, I mean, <laughs> it's there largely for a fact
0: is privacy is data privacy in there
2: <laughs> no i don't think data privacy was invented by that stage so no it, it won't be in there what you oh, can wow. see is above, is above it i have like lego stuff so actually the, the yes. camera's kind of angled to show the intelligence stuff but above that is lego
0: nice <laughs> uh, We had a great, uh, great session with this guy, Chris Hart, a friend of ours who has a huge library all behind him. So we spent the whole episode with him talking about, you know, his like massive library of analog uh, knowledge behind him.
1: I've got, Andy, you never commented on my encyclopedia. You see it back there? That little Amazon Echo right there? There it is. (laughs) There it is. I got it all right there, man. There it is. I keep it on the floor. I don't want it to get too, you know, used to being around here, but uh, (laughs) there it is.
0: Um, why here we are with Phil, uh, let's, let's get into it. Um, so let me, I, I think I thought about where to start with you, Phil. And I think I want to start with this. We often hear like the difference between the United States view of data privacy and the European view of data privacy comes from the view of privacy as a fundamental right. So I guess I wanted to ask you, like with all that we've seen, changes gdpr ccpa things happening all over the world privacy laws has that changed at all like have you seen any shift in that is that true in in your mind like is that a true statement
2: the the, the idea of privacy in europe comes from being a fundamental right um yeah i mean it's 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 very very true uh I, you know when i first moved out to the valley years ago i it was a way I used to kind of try and introduce the topic to a lot of the US council that I was talking to, because uh, you know at the time the GDPR had only just been proposed, and uh, you know there was a lot of there was a lot of I don't even say resistance, but there was a lack of education, I guess, amongst some of the people I was speaking to about what the GDPR was and how seriously the Europeans were going to take it. And the way I used to try and explain it to people was that um, you know I'd say look, you know, imagine how you guys feel about the Second Amendment, right? You know, don't Whatever side of the debate you're on, it doesn't matter whether you're pro-guns, anti-guns, whatever. But the point is that everybody has a view about it and they feel strongly about it. And that's kind of how it is in Europe, you know, and more so in some countries perhaps than others. But it is a very strongly, deeply held belief. And I think all of the kind of, you know, the regulation, the law, the, the court decisions in particular that you're seeing um, more recently, they're all coming from that kind of origin of it being a fundamental right and needing to be protected at all costs.
0: When you worked in Silicon Valley, did you think that, did you get the sense that people viewed it as a commodity? Data?
2: Um, well, you know, there's that old kind of adage about data being the new oil, which is a bit of a tight cliche now. But, um, you know, yeah, it, it's kind of, I find it really hard to answer actually. I, I like, I grew up, my dad was a database programmer. And so, from my earliest memory I just kind of remember talking with data about my dad and he made a very successful career out of it and and you know and, and I saw him get busier and busier and databases get bigger and bigger and bigger and and I just kind of remember thinking you know it just kind of seemed to me that data was really really important and um, and that there's a lot of value to be derived from it but you know some of the things that were going on were getting more and more intrusive and there was a kind of a balance to be struck between monetization and privacy and You know, going out to the valley, um, for me originally, it was a bit like being a kid in a candy store because, you know, I kind of arrived out there and, you know, I I came, I grew up in sort of rural Suffolk in the UK. And, you know, and then suddenly I I kind of landed out in Silicon Valley and and it was as far removed from my upbringing as anything I could imagine. You know, I was kind of going, driving down the road and seeing Google self driving cars or, uh, you know, going around the local shopping mall in Palo Alto and seeing these kind of robot security guard type things there. And it was it was just fantastic. And and I've I, you know, I've always kind of sat somewhere in that kind of crossroads of being half excited by what we can do with data and half terrified by it. And uh, I think um you know uh, yeah there was you know the technology I saw out in the valley there's a real sense there was some amazing stuff you could do with it. Uh, that perhaps wasn't quite the same level of understanding about the need to protect it. But I think that that has really evolved over time.
0: Yeah.
1: Do you think, uh, so sticking with the like question of like fundamental right and privacy and I like your analogy to the second amendment. I actually think and the analogy I've made in the past is like the sanctity of privacy as a fundamental right in Europe is very close to like the American view on the first amendment, which is if you go to an American, all Americans, and you're like, You can't say that. You're going to get immediate resistance. Think about where I work. Freedom of speech is all like like people perception of freedom of speech is so absolute that it's gone into the realm of like a privately owned business creating a venue for you to speak on and people feeling like any control over that discussion or their ability to express whatever they want is an infringement on their fundamental right this is a very american centric point of view which i uh, to be honest i'm uh, uh, like i'm uh, an adherent to like i'm really adamant that like intellectual freedom requires the ability for me to say whatever i want um, that doesn't extend though into you know making threats or or being hostile or being hateful or or you know uh propagating violence or whatever. So there are limits that Americans also understand about the uh, absoluteness of freedom of speech. What's Europeans' point of view on the limits of the fundamental right to privacy? Because I never hear a lot of talk about like where that line ends. If you have, and I'll give one more example. Most Americans understand that as part of their ability to exercise free speech, they can't scream fire in a movie theater. Like it doesn't go that far right um and so where does the European point of view on privacy uh, draw the line if that makes sense
2: yeah it's uh, I mean I, I guess to kind of play off your analogy I mean you say most Americans understand that but I think equally there are certainly those that don't from from my experience you know maybe some former occupants of the White House being an example of that I think this the same is kind of true in Europe in that um, know there's a large uh, there's a large you know swathe of people who kind of understand that you know being part of a functioning society involves actually contributing a certain level of data about yourself and understanding that that data will be used i mean if you just think about data that governments necessarily hold on you for i don't know for social security for healthcare, for any of those kinds of things that you know that go on um but you know equally at at the extremes you have people you know on both sides who think that you know one half thinks that uh you know privacy is dead and data should just be used freely and you know what is all this data protection nonsense about and then you have you know uh, another cohort of people who kind of think that um you know uh, that your privacy is is, an, is is absolute and that you know you should be able to kind of function without ever giving away anything about yourself or without anybody ever knowing any kind of data about you and you know i i, I guess sort of in earlier years of my career, I used to be quite—I um, don't know—distraught that people held kind of held those views because it seemed to be unrealistic and it didn't seem to be to be uh, you know kind of really reflecting the way that societies and economies and people work. Um, but you know, nowadays I guess my sort of view has changed a little bit, which is that I think almost you need those extreme viewpoints arguing it out because that's where you arrive at a sensible answer in the middle. And I'm not saying we necessarily have arrived at a sensible answer in the middle on all of this stuff right now. I think we're still figuring it out. But I think you need the uh, you need the edge cases arguing it to 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 work out what the middle should be.
0: What what else is
1: what's also interesting to me, and I I really want to focus on the European point of view of things. Is like in America, a large percent of the population also has pretty fundamental distrust of government, right? Like half of Americans prefer government be out of their lives. The other half also have some notions of like liberalism and the meaning of like agency and autonomy and the government not interfering in your affairs. In Europe, in the context of privacy, which is the only thing I understand um, and, and have some knowledge about, you know, there's this absolute fundamental right of privacy. And I think there's a little bit of absolutism around that, especially around like the privacy advocacy community in Europe, etc. What's interesting, though, is GDPR and like even most recently, the new like AI regulation has tremendous carve outs for government and like the rules not applying Right. Like no one is more engaged in like besides China, like the overt surveillance of their citizens than several countries in Europe. Right. Um, uh, and, and several countries in Europe are tremendously, uh, tremendously skilled and have long-standing histories of like espionage and surveillance in their colonies for example and in you know in, in their empires of past so what, what's super interesting to me is like when it comes to corporations and like capitalist actors particularly American companies there's this a lot of energy in Europe of like let's limit power let's limit access let's 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 create parameters but with government every single time I see a car out why?
2: <laughs> that's a really good question i think um i think if you to ask a lot of europeans you know you're you're kind of average european on the street i think a lot of them would tell you they do have a mistrust of government um but uh you know i think the ones who think that probably haven't experienced the american view i mean i i, I would agree with you in terms of having spent time in the states they're kind of the the, the um the fear of the overarching government i think is a, is a lot more strongly held in the u.s than it is in europe you know but having said that you know look at look at recent history in the eu i mean we we have seen some of the very worst examples of uh, of um you know uh, government harm in, in 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 you know in some of the countries so you don't have to think you know back that far to to kind of recall sort of recent history but um but generally yeah i think there, there is a greater tolerance of it there's, there's certainly within the legislation and quite possibly because you know i guess two things one you know laws are created by the legislators, the governments, and two, because within the EU, um, you know, a lot of the carve-outs that you're seeing in the legislation are to recognise member state sovereignty. So, you know, you're creating these rules that apply across all of the EU, but then you're kind of saying, but, you know, you, individual member state, have the right to create your own national laws. And typically, that will be governments carving things out for law enforcement or national security reasons or things like that um and that's just stuff that's devolved to them as part of the, the kind of the, the the european union framework so i, I guess there's kind of both a, a sort of a technical reason in terms of the structure of the eu and you know just the general um people are, aren't quite as alarmed by the idea of government as, as they are in the u.s you
1: think i don't want to sorry one last thing and then i'll be i'll be quiet on this topic but like and i don't want to call it a hypocrisy but like the inconsistency to me in that is this, like right? are limits on government power, at least in the American point of view. Like, when you think of the Bill of Rights, it's not written with corporations in mind. It's written with, like, the limitation of government's power and, you know, and and making sure that, like, whatever government power is exercised does not infringe on those rights. Um, I don't know enough about, like, European, like, civil, you know, fundamental rights history to speak intelligently about, like, how the, continent or the individual member states think about individual rights and who those rights impose limits on and the american view it's very much on government first than everyone else is it the same in europe because i really have struggled understanding the notion that like privacy is a fundamental right we're going to enforce it the most on the private sector the private sector at least until now neither has the power to take my life like the government does Um, or imprison me like the government does or remove me from the country like the government does or you know sanction me like the government does right like facebook Google but but, but, yeah can't do these things right but
0: they can send you a targeted ad for shoes pedro
1: yeah that's a big deal man gotta stop that so like i mean (laughs) like that's the part where i'm like I, i i'm all for like you know if you're a privacy fundamentalist fundamental is a strong word but if you're a a, a a passionate privacy advocate but like the applicability of it un, in an unbalanced way more focused on like the commercial uses of data versus like the very dangerous government uses of data just surprises me
2: every time well i you know i am i'm in danger of, of you being too erudite for me and, and maybe i'm getting out of my depth but i think the um uh, I mean, I guess there are there are a few points there. I mean, firstly, I don't want to give the impression that the governments just get a free pass on the European privacy laws. They don't. You know, the the GDPR applies to public authorities in the same way that it applies to corporations. Yes, there are certain exemptions. In some ways, there are things that are more restrictive on government than they are under than they are in private corporations. So, you take for example, reliance on legitimate interest. It's almost impossible for a government to do that. Whereas, um, you know, the kind of the public interest ground under the GDPR, uh, you know, it exists for governments, but you have to demonstrate there's a public interest that is legislated for under European or member state law. And then I guess the argument would go that for that public interest to exist, you would have to have the legislation be passed through a democratic process by representatives of the people. And so there is that kind of check and balance there. I suppose when you get to issues like sort of imprisoning people or taking people's life, then... That is why we, uh, you know, are meant to have an independent judiciary who serves as the check and balance on government. And, you know, I guess those would be the arguments that people would put forward in terms of, um, uh, you know, not wanting to give, as I say, not wanting to give the impression that the government just has a free run of people's data because they don't.
0: Can you
1: imagine if Facebook put up, and I'm using Facebook as an example, but it could be Snapchat, Google, whatever? For no, if apparent Facebook, reason whatsoever. <laughs> if Facebook filled London with cameras. <laughs> You know, I just think if we like outrageous, right? Like New York City is filled with like you know, surveillance cameras that Google runs to like, you know, for marketing purposes, it would freak the world out. But then go to London or New York City oh. or Paris, right? Like it's just it's there's, a, there, vid-
0: there's something oh, there's, there's something personally challenging with the mentality that a company is profiting. And so that's the government, you're you're not wrong, and you know, Phil's uh, points about the limitations are interesting to note. There is something personally, just personally unsettling about the feeling that my data is used by a corporation, you know, to to line their line their coffers, if you're, you know, sort of taking an advocacy bent there um, and not, and, and, you know, th- those advocates often ignore the kind of freak, free content, free internet, you know, <laughs> um, benefits that are there for them and that's always been an interesting one to me when you talk about you know people attacking the cookie or 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 you know where we land on sort of fundamental you know internet access to internet content rights it's it's an interesting discussion i think it's deeply personal
2: yeah i mean i I think uh, i mean this is probably the most intellectual privacy conversation i've had in quite a while but I, i think you know, on the surveillance cameras in London, of course, you know, the UK does have a, a surveillance commissioner separate from the information commissioner, and, you know, their responsibility is to manage, the, you know, the, the kind of use of cameras in public places. So, so we, we do have, you know, a, 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 um, a regulator that is kind of responsible for that. But I guess, to your point, Andy, the other issue is that, you know, the, the, view is that when when you have a government, there's a kind of social contract between you and the government in that, you know, there are certain elements of your privacy that you are trading away for things in return, like, you know, maybe social benefits or maybe, you know, safety and security and all those kinds of things, which aren't things that private government, that private corporations generally provide you. And the kind of the feeling that you are using things where corporations are, you know, maybe tracking you or whatever, without you being aware of it, without you having control over it. That's what where, where people get upset. Um, the internet point is kind of an interesting one because you're absolutely right you know a lot of people benefit from from a, a you know a free internet largely they do that by virtue of the advertising that takes place on that i think you know in the mindset of a lot of people though the, the internet's become like a utility it's almost yeah. become like a kind of a public service and that's maybe where the lines get a bit blurred
0: when did you know phil like that that trying to figure out the best way to put like when did you know that this data privacy thing would would get give you the sense the like the amount of job security that you have now <laughs> i always joke with you about like the job security of the gdpr cc now ccpa kind of data privacy tech expert outside counsel and i just joke every law that's passed i'm always you know texting and sending my friends like another th- three years of prosperity for you there you know it's always a fun joke but when did you like recognize there must have been a point when you recognized i see the long play here in this as a as somebody that can specialize here and, and be helpful
2: yeah i mean i um i, I there those are kind of convergence of things that happened for me i suppose but i you know i mentioned i i grew up with a dad who was a program so i always kind of had a a, 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 a database program at like that so I always had a kind of an implicit understanding of the value of data, but I was I was working at my very first law firm, and um, you know, and I kind of fell into data a little bit because you know, it, as an area of law, it came a little bit more naturally to me than other areas of law, and probably by virtue of my background. But um, uh, but I kind of realised that I was becoming more and more specialist in it, and I wanted to go somewhere where I could be in a more specialist team and develop within the role. And I was speaking to one of the partners uh, about my plans and and trying to see whether the current firm i was at would kind of encourage me to take it further and they basically um the partner took me to one side and he kind of said you know you realize this whole privacy thing is just a fad right it's all going to go away in a couple of years and it really kind of forced me to think about it i was like i you know i just i just don't understand it because for me it was always a very simple equation you know there was um you know you read all these reports about more and more data being generated You know, this kind of whole thing about you know 99% of the world's data being generated in the past year or two years whatever the statistic is and so I saw more data being generated and people only bother to generate something if it has a value and typically when something has a value people try to monetize it and when when they try to monetize it regulators typically step in and when regulators step in you know legislation and guidance and all that stuff gets created so it just felt to me that as uh, there was going to be more data, there'll be more regulation, the area of law would be pretty secure. So, so it felt like a safe bet. And the only surprise to me really was that kind of at the time, other people didn't see that. Um, but I was lucky, you know, I joined, I joined Field Fisher, which at the time did see that, and I joined a very specialist team and, and um, was kind of able to develop it. But uh, but yeah, I, you know, I guess it was that. I never really saw it as anything that complicated or surprising, perhaps the way some others did.
0: Did that partner ever approach you and later and from that other firm and say like, "Hey Phil, good call."
2: They they once were tried tried to recruit me back, but no. Ah, I there you sure go. There was.
0: <laughs> that was so good. That's so. That's so. Um, I think at a at a in my first law firm, I would not have thought independently necessarily enough to to kind of. Go off and, but obviously, you know, you you felt the support from Field Fisher to go do that, which is interesting. But I wouldn't have. It's cool to me that you thought about it that way because I don't think I would have. Now I might, but not back then. You know. Uh,
2: you, you know, honestly, I, it makes it sound like it was a great strategic decision on my part. You know, half of the half of the things I've done have been well, not even half. Most of the things I've done have been pure random luck. But it. But that one, that one did just seem to me like a, a fairly safe bet at the time.
0: I'm sure after some time staring out at the river. Reflecting, you got to the right decision.
2: Uh, you're never going to let me live that down.
0: You <laughs> don't know this, before, but a news a news outfit did a story on Phil, and and the, he was comment you know commenting, and they just had this visual of him thinking about like staring out wistfully at the river, thinking about privacy. i I just think it's the funniest thing ever. That they...
2: I I was t- the funny thing was I was doing that interview and they said okay now we just need to get some shots of you by the river and I was like yeah sorry what and they were like just stand here and look across the river so that's what I did and they filmed it and then they you know made me look like I was some sort of great thinker or whatever but uh...
0: privacy privacy meditations in nature. <laughs> 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 privacy of nostradamus phil leo what the
1: hell is that shit about? that's awesome um Bill, let me ask you like uh since we've been a little philosophical i want to bring some substance into the philosophical talk andy and i have been back and forth in text and i think you're in the group i don't know which text group we've been talking about this but i've been ranting about dark patterns for like 48 hours right and like my view on like how we're framing what a dark pattern is
0: yeah, you, right yeah will you tee up what it is because i don't think like everybody most people know so yeah it's well, a pretty out uh, of the
2: moment yeah i was gonna say i don't think i've been on that tight screen so i probably need oh, yeah, to tee it yeah. up for me as well
1: i mean look like, a dark pattern is basically like using prompts and user choices that aren't complete or nudge people to behave a certain way and like do come out to a desired outcome right like yeah. And that's like a super basic explanation of what a dark pattern is. Like getting people to do what you want them to do, even if that's not what they would otherwise do, right? Via prompts and texts and whatever. Like, for example, like if I select no, I don't want to see ads, and every ten seconds I get a pop up that says, "Do you want ads to turn back ads, ads back on? Do you want to turn ads back on, Pedro? Do you want to turn ads back on?" That's a dark pattern,
0: right? Is is, is advertising retargeting a dark pattern? Well, here's
1: my question about that. Is telling the truth ever a dark pattern? Like, is saying to someone the truth as you see it, right? Like, if you click no, then X will happen or may happen. Like, it's where are the a, boundaries a, of what a dark pattern is, I guess is my question. I don't know.
0: I, I want to hear from Phil, but I just want one comment. Like, it's such a ludicrous... In some ways such a ludicrous idea to me because as people who write privacy policies for a living like of course there's a way in which you want to craft a privacy policy and you want to disclose things and you want to say things in certain ways and you want to talk about things and you want to i don't know like there's there's different ways to write stuff so is that a dark pattern or is that me like? disclosing something or talking about something in a way that I hope will land a certain way for people.
1: But I think that for something to be a dark pattern, I, I really believe this. Like it has to trick you. Like it, it has to be intended to trick, not to like influence. At least that's my personal view. Like if I'm tricking Andy into doing something, um, that's to me a clear dark pattern. If I'm working really hard to influence Andy to make the choice that I want him to make, that's annoying. But I don't know that that's a dark pattern. But I could be wrong.
2: Yeah, I don't. I don't know that I would agree. Um, I mean, just from what you're explaining, I guess you know yes if you're tricking people that's clearly wrong if but uh, you know you imagine scenarios where you're doing something because you know it benefits you but it disadvantages the person you're trying to persuade to do something i mean i take forget the internet forget those processing for a second but just if you were just to do that to another human being you wouldn't see that as good you know as good behavior towards somebody um so i you know i i think a lot of you know if we're sort of talking about situations like you know do we nudge people towards accepting ads because you know we can then say we provide you with free access to the website to accept ads and if you don't accept ads that uh you know that we can no longer provide you with access to the website um you know i guess the, you know that m- maybe that's the truth i don't know but the, i guess there's another question to be asked which is that even if it is the truth is that the way you should be functioning and you know if you can get the if you can get the the revenue that you need from a certain proportion of users who do accept advertising does it follow from that you should still you know still allow access for those who don't accept advertising i mean i, I you know I, I don't know that it, I, I, I we're straying i suppose a bit into ethics and what is the rights and wrongs of these things um, you know and, and i guess maybe what you're getting at pedro is that the perhaps the way that data protection law has evolved over the past sort of 20 years or so has been that it kind of started off, I think, when I started practicing, on these, it started off as a very kind of (laughs) formulaic, black and white approach to these issues where you would say, you know, is it allowed in the text of the law? You know, yes, if so, we, we can get away with it. Even if some of the behaviors we think aren't necessarily positive behaviors, you know, it's allowed by law and therefore we'll do it. I think, you know, particularly more recently, the past five years in particular, we've got more, much more into questioning the ethics of what we're doing. You know, we look at the, we look at the principles, you know, particularly the GPI of notions of things like fairness and what have you. And we look at things like, is it fair? You know, is it right that we do this? And perhaps there's a case to be made that some of the regulators are overstepping their boundaries in terms of not just deciding what's lawful, but the way they want the world to be. But, you know, sometimes I think you also have to be asking those questions about, you know, what is the right thing to do? What is, what is the proper thing to do? And not just what can we do?
1: Yeah. And, 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 I appreciate that. And, you know, to be clear, like when I say trick, like, it, I mean, it, that to me, that's like a broad concept that includes a lot of things like, you know, like bait and switch and misdirection and like deception, like all of that to me is like trickery, right? Like um, it's getting people to behave in ways that you desire that may annoy them or not be in their best interest. Um, You know, like one of the things that I saw tweeted yesterday was like, you know, like, The the New York Times like Roach Motel approach, which is like once you're in subscribed, it's almost impossible to get out. Right. The Roach Motel. Right. And so that's a dark pattern. Like if you make it easy to join and impossible to leave. At some point, I think it becomes. You know, a dark pattern, but it's not like if the New York, if I hit unsubscribe in New York Times and they said, are you sure? Here's the value of the New York Times. Here's what you get for five bucks or 20 bucks or whatever it is. I don't think that's a dark pattern. Now, if I have to do that 65 times and call somebody on the phone and they never answer and I can only call between like the hours of 4 and 5 a.m. Eastern, like, yeah, now it starts to become remember, this impossible
0: task. Do you remember like, uh, Columbia House?
1: Columbia House, exactly. Like, you, just, <laughs> it, you join, you get 50 CDs up front and then you're trapped forever. Yeah,
0: forever. Like it's a,
1: that That's a dark nightmare. <laughs> that's not even a pattern,
0: right? It's been interesting, right? With CCPA, we saw like... Um, with the requirement around sale of data and the definition of sale being so broad that it catches, you know, every activity a human could do with anything ever. And, and, and so then you're gonna see people talking about that in their privacy. There's gonna be you know a, a variability there, but lots of companies talking about I, I we knew we would see this. You and I discussed this. Like we knew that people would get into their privacy policy and start talking about what, what they think a sale is you know and Mm -hmm. what is a sale like did did we sell something for money versus like did we disclose an inference that we we you know did we make an inference from like that nuance that level of nuance right so like it's a really good question like is that a dark pattern or is that me disclosing some activities that i'm doing in a world where the law is gray we don't have a lot of enforcement history around that so i'm going to take a just you know like a uh a, a, an over-disclosure position. I'm going to talk about what I'm doing. I'm going to have uh, reasons and logic behind it. And if someone tells me to walk it back, I will. I will. Some people take yeah,
2: that. Yeah, kind of, um, you know, First off, your thing about the Columbia House and the CDs—like when I was a student, I, I actually did one of those things where I signed up for these kind of free CDs and then got trapped in this thing that I could just never get out of. And it was my first, my first experience sending like a contentious letter to a company as a—I as a, wrote the thing saying, "I am a trainee lawyer, and you know, you have to stop sending me this because you breach all sort of matter." Of Are, you Are you still getting them? You still getting them? I got, I got out of it. They, they, <laughs> they stopped. But I look back at it now, and there's probably some in-house lawyer who was rolling on the floor laughing, reading my letter. But the, um, uh, but I guess the you know to the point you and Pedro are making, I suppose you know you're. I almost want to quantify something that's that's just intangible. You know, like the one of the um, things that really made me laugh a while back was I saw Dan Solov put this um, uh, this paper sort of online where he's saying you know I've written this paper that solves all of the world's privacy problems. And you know the headline got my attention, so classic clickbait. I, I sort of clicked on it to read it and it just opened up and it was just two words and it just said be reasonable and i think you know honestly that's the answer to, to to most of the privacy situations we face it is a question of you know what is reasonable where privacy gets both frustrating and interesting by equal measure is that people's idea of what is reasonable really really varies it varies by individual it varies by culture it varies by nationality you know and so Uh, You know, like if you're speaking to your internal sales team you think it's perfectly okay that they spam people three times a day to, to, you know, get a bit more conversion, you know, they think that's reasonable, whereas your average recipient wouldn't, or, you know, a a German's view of what is reasonable versus what, you know, an American view of what is reasonable would be very, very different things. And so, um, you know, I guess that all goes back to the dark pattern issue in terms of, you know, Pedro, what you're saying, you know, like the kind of, you have to click once, are you sure, you know, we'll give you a discount if you stay that feels reasonable to me i wouldn't call that a dark pattern but you know once you get into the you have to click 67 times just to get out of this agreement clearly that's unreasonable i think the challenge most of us face is that we can all point to situations where we say you know there is something that's clearly okay and there's something that is clearly not okay but there's a lot of gray in the middle and you know i guess that's why we all stay in jobs and get paid the way we do
1: yeah i think that's right and you know and here's where my like concern comes from on the dark pattern analysis right like I don't know, behaviorists and social scientists can figure out what is or what is in a dark pattern based on your point. Maybe it's a reasonableness standard. Maybe there's some other like standard that is above my understanding. That's one thing. So like determining if something is a dark pattern is, I think, outside the purview of a privacy professional's uh, competence, in my opinion. Um, what I see possibly being the direction of travel, which is what concerns me, Is that if companies or or governments or nonprofit organizations can come up with a way to persuade users to act in a way that is not the highest privacy protective threshold expectation by a regulator or by an enforcement uh, authority, that that automatically will be evidence that there's a dark pattern. Meaning if people make choices against their privacy, that company or that organization must be engaged in deception, you know, bait and switch, confirm shaming, whatever. Otherwise, people would never choose to share their data or allow, you know, company X to do XYZ with their data. That really concerns me. Combined with the fact that privacy lawyers and privacy professionals are not Experts at deciding behavioral activities like me understanding privacy doesn't make me an expert in understanding human decision making. That's not true. And so, the privacy advocacy and regulatory community deciding what isn't what isn't a dark pattern would be to me a bad outcome.
2: Uh, yeah, I mean, I think I think you make, make a really good point, Ashley. And I, it's, it, it's almost I think it's bigger than dark patterns. The issue I think is, you know, ultimately you know it's the kind of the who watches the watchman type situation you know where you you have the data protection authorities that come out with guidance and they say we think this is a bad thing and that that, that then becomes the de facto standard of what is a bad thing you know one of the things i think will happen um and we'll find out whether or not it does but you know pre pre gdpr in europe you know everything the data protection authority said was essentially gospel because you know there were there, there wasn't any point to challenging what an authority said you know if 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 an authority found against you, well, you know, if you challenged them before a court, you were just the evil corporation challenging them. And frankly, the cost of challenging them would probably be way more than the fine Mm -hmm. that was imposed. And so there wasn't really much point in doing so. But I think now that we've entered a world where we're seeing regulators um, kind of impose fines that run, you know, into hundreds of millions of euros, or we're seeing some of the first class actions come through, that kind of world where you know regulators could say and do things and they weren't challenged, I think it's changing. And I think, you know, we are going to enter a, a situation where we get more um to use a legal term, jurisprudence around all of this stuff. We're going to see more court decisions. And and I hope I hope that in turn makes people think about the stuff a little bit more. And I mean everybody, I mean regulators included, that you know, that they can't just make knee-jerk decisions or always go to the most conservative standard around things. I mean there are situations with some of the stuff the regulators have done so far that I think are demonstrably harmful if you take you know the regulatory view on you know what is anonymous data in europe for example you know the the standard the bar has been set so impossibly high for anonymization you know, I, I go into meetings, I'm sure you do, all the time with engineers who say, this data is anonymous, and you have to say, well, well, you know, not in Europe, because there's this remote possibility that actually if somebody, you know, brute attack the hashing ID, they could maybe figure out the IP address and they could match that with the ISP subscriber records. And even though it's a dynamic IP, if you know the date and time, we could probably just about work out somebody is. So fantastically unlikely to happen. But, you know, arguably, arguably still personal data, synonymous anonymous data under the GDPR. And the consequence of taking that very extreme view is that actually i think it serves to inhibit people taking those efforts because if you think we could do all this stuff to the data we could pseudonymize it we could hash it encrypt it, all this kind of stuff but there's a cost associated with that and at the end of the day we're being told it's still personal data that's, such a so good point. Why that's such a,
0: that is such a good super good point. point yeah like it's it's just you know
2: like who Remind wants
0: to invest me. in
1: non-compliance, right? Like that's really the question. Like I'm gonna invest all this money, all this engineering time, all these people's uh, efforts into not meeting the threshold, but making things safer, even though I'm still exposed regularly. Like that's that's tough. That's a tough business proposition. It's,
0: I mean- it's, it's letting the perfect be the enemy of the good. And it's, that's right. it's not, it doesn't achieve better outcomes for data subjects and consumers. It's it, worse outcomes we, we have to wrap with phil soon i want like i want to ask one final follow-up question did you play tetris at all we use tetris as tetris. the as the theme of this because it feels like there's so many pieces and flips and and pieces flipping did you play te- pedro has strong views on tetris but did you play tetris, <laughs> tetris <sucks.
2: laughs> yeah I, I love tetris that, that whole theme tune the whole da, 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 i loved it <laughs>
0: uh-huh. Pedro, what do you what do you think about Tetris? It sucks. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's Candy Crush, man. Like,
1: I, I just don't like games where things are falling. <laughs> like it's just a so movie. no. But I get the appeal of Tetris. I mean, it's a puzzle, right? Like it's it, it's a it's a time pressured puzzle in a way. It's kind
0: I'm, of. I'm with man. you in the sense that I liked Tetris, but I always liked the. The game puzzle better, like Legend of Zelda, where you had to stuff, yeah. solve something within the context of a game.
2: Do you know, mm. I have never played Zelda. I'm oh. so embarrassed to admit it, because I love video games, but I've never played Zelda.
0: Oh, man.
1: It, like, it, it, Zelda's top, like, Ocarina of Time, which is one of the Zelda versions, Nintendo 64, is the best video game I've ever played. It was, it was unbelievable, but...
0: Uh, Zelda. Yeah, Zelda. it's a very privacy
1: centric. Everybody wears like hoods and things. You don't really know who's who. Like it's well, it's privacy also,
0: also privacy centric in this sense. In if you play the original Nintendo version and you oh build God. up your character over time and you do well, and then it <laughs> randomly erases your, your your character. It's the it's the it's like the. Uh, the <laughs> The falling of Privacy Shield. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you did all this
1: shit, you know, you worked on it for weeks, you got all the bells and whistles, on, you know, your guy, and then it's just gone.
0: Yep, It's literally just
1: gone. It's all it's just gone. Yeah. Nintendo. Nintendo.
0: The European Court of Justice just takes it away.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Bill, thanks for hanging out with us, man. All right. No, thank you very much for having me. All right, I, I, sort of, I feel like the kid who's been invited to the cool party. So thank you. To, oh, man.
0: We, we can't wait to see you in person.
1: <laughs> Next time, we really want to discuss, like you know, volume uh, fifty-one of your Britannica collection. Let's just see what's in there. Let's just see what happens.
2: I <laughs> will uh, tell you, and then you can compare the answer on Alexa and see, what, see. I really want to want do an out.
1: episode on dinosaurs, and I think we should use Bill's encyclopedia. <laughs> 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 As a primary source. Yeah. <laughs>